Welcome, dear listener, and thank you for joining me for this special Halloween edition of Dead Hand Radio. I'm your host, Andrew Hall. What we're about to embark on throughout these coming days leading up to Halloween is a series of interviews with people from all walks of life who've experienced some of the most harrowing, spine-chilling tales you've ever heard. We're talking ghost stories, haunted buildings, cursed lands, myths, legends, and lore, the likes of which many have never heard before. Some of my guests are new, most are returning visitors of the show, and have agreed to share with us, in some cases for the first time ever, their personal experiences of unexplained and hair-raising stories from beyond the veil. Consider this your final warning. Those who choose to proceed may have their sanity challenged, question reality, or lose their mind with fear from these tales of the unknown and unexplained. And now, the Dead Hand Radio Halloween Special. This is Brian Roof, author, PR guy, uh, occasional interview subject. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio with Andrew Hall. Hey, Brian, welcome to Dead End Radio, and thanks for joining me for this Halloween edition of the podcast. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. All right, man. So it's been a little while since we've talked. You're a writer, and uh, you've written several books now, and I think they all center around the Las Vegas area. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, I've always been a writer in terms of my profession, but it's been more on the PR side, um, but about 20 years ago, I uh, decided I wanted to try my hand at, uh, at fiction, and I wrote a, a Vegas novel called Dice Angel, based on some true things I had seen uh, and heard here in town over the years. I've been here almost 40 years, which is insane to me. Um, it's one of the most interesting cities in the world, I think. And uh, especially for anybody like myself with a journalism background who takes notes and, and pays attention to what's going on. And uh, Dice Angel sold well, and it was such a positive experience that I've written two other novels since then, plus a whole bunch of short stories and, and other things. So, you know, I always say I have to be a little nuts because I write professionally during the day. And then my hobby is writing. So it's like, you know, I, I sh should probably have my head examined. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, um, each of your novels are uh, unique and interesting in their own right. But this being our Halloween special, I'd like to talk about your most recent novel. Well, great. It's good. It is good timing. You're right. It's called The House Always Wins, which is a little play on words, uh, you know, for those of us who, who know Vegas and, and, uh, and have enjoyed or not gambling from time to time. 
and it's um, all my stuff is based very loosely on on true things. So this is based on a on a house that my family and I lived in about 15 years ago that we always thought was haunted. So now whether it was or not, I used that premise to to be off and running with the book. So uh, you know, the, the, I, I mainly write for myself uh, things that interest me and amuse me, and I hope that other people find it uh, enjoyable as well. Now, prior to writing this book, um, and we'll get into the experiences that you had, which uh, inspired the book, but uh, prior to that, had you had any interest in the paranormal? Just in passing. I mean, uh, you know, I always would joke, but it's only half a joke that before I die, I would like to see a ghost, you know, like have a real encounter with one. Um, and also a UFO. I'm fascinated by UFOs. So um, I would like to uh, like to experience those first uh, firsthand. Both are fascinating topics. And um, what, uh, what I'm interested in hearing today is some of your spooky ghost stories. Well, what inspired the, the most recent book is, um, I'll, I'll go back about 15, 15 years. So my wife is a realtor, and we got caught up in the flipping craze in the early 2000s. And in 2000, I want to say 2002, she found this big old fixer-upper in an old part of town on St. Louis, which people who know Vegas know that part of town. And we got a smoking hot deal on it, but it needed a tremendous amount of work. I mean, this house was almost 6,000 square feet. It had been owned by a, a Vegas uh, entertainer, a band leader, pretty well-known guy. And it was a very cool house. Um, it even had like an indoor outdoor swimming pool that you could swim under a glass partition into the master bedroom. And it had a, uh, at one time it had a working soda fountain. It had a huge Citizen Kane style, uh, almost like a walk-in fireplace. Um, it, was, it was massive, but it was in tremendous disrepair. I mean, there was a little bit of water, like swamp water in the bottom of the pool. Uh, anyway, we got a great deal and we moved in as a family project and lived in it for three years and completely remodeled the house, brought it back to its former glory. But while we were living there and our, our, our daughter and son-in-law and our young grandson lived downstairs and we lived upstairs and I would hear and feel and see all kinds of weird things, mostly at night, everything from temperature changes, walking down the hall, it would be hot, then it would be like walking through a fog and then it would be warm again. Um, Doors and drawers never stayed shut. My wife would say, hey, I thought I told you to shut the drawer. I said, I did shut the drawer. And then, uh, you know, it would be open again. And so at first she just thought it was me being forgetful. But then she realized a little bit that, that things were happening. There was one room upstairs that we rarely used, but it always smelled like cigar smoke. And no matter what we did to try to disinfect it and, and, and Lysol spray and the whole thing, it would always come back. And, you know, strange noises. Now, you know, if you're a rational thinker, which apparently I'm not, 
you could make a case for the house being just an old house and it settles and it makes noises and, and you know, maybe the AC and the heating system was, was messed up. So there's that, but that's not that interesting. So I always felt like maybe there was like a trickster ghost that occupied that house. Uh, never saw anything, but I felt all and, and, and experienced all those other things. And I thought, well, this could be a good idea for my next novel. And I became obsessed with it. And that's when I started writing The House Always Wins. Uh, so, and, you know, so there's, it's not uncommon for people to, to have unusual experiences in their homes, especially when the home has, it has some kind of a history. And um, with the, uh, with the, um, the popularity of these ghost hunting shows and paranormal investigation teams uh, popping up all over the place for the last 15, 20 years, did you guys ever think of having um, a psychic medium or a team of uh, uh, paranormal investigators come in to check out the house? You know, it did not occur to us. It just was something that we we lived with. And maybe we didn't feel like it was real enough to in, invite um, somebody in to do that. In retrospect, I think it would have been a great idea. But uh, but that ship has sailed. Unfortunately, the saddest part is we sold it. And then the guy we sold it to apparently defaulted on it. And then it sat vacant for years. And then in 2014, it burnt to the ground in a mysterious fire. And all that's left is a vacant lot on that, on that street. It, it breaks my heart because we really did put our heart and soul into that house. And so now the book is the only thing that, that is a remembrance other than there's a website um, called Living Las Vegas that has a number of pictures uh, of, of the house on it. So. Uh, that's about all that's left, unfortunately. When you bought it, it was in disrepair, so it had been abandoned for quite some time. Yes. Do you know who owned it before you did? Yeah, it was a fella named Jack Eglash, and he was uh, the orchestra leader for the old Sahara Hotel back when the Sahara was a really big deal. And so, uh, you know, he had worked with all the Vegas greats, everybody from the Rat Pack, to um, Wayne Newton, I'm sure, and, and Sammy Davis. Well, he was part of the Rat Pack and, um, you know, Elvis. And all of those people I've heard had been in that house at one time or another. The, the house was kind of legendary, we found out later on. And many people had heard of Jack, um, but I'm sure it wasn't Jack's ghost because he was still living when we were living in, in the house. So there was something else going on. It's interesting because when you said that it was owned by a former band leader, you know, from the, I, I think you said he was, um, he was pretty active in the fifties and sixties, wasn't it? Yes. And the house was originally built in the fifties and then he kept adding on. Yeah. So he was the, the first owner. Yes. He built the house. And then he was the final owner before you got it. Correct. He had lived there um, probably from the mid to late 50s, probably for 25, 30 years. But I don't know how long that house was abandoned, but 
it looked like for many years that it just sat empty and, and neglected. It almost seems like the house did not want to be occupied. You know, it's possible. The only thing is, is that the, the entity that, that we experienced um, didn't feel evil or malevolent. It, it felt more like maybe he, it was just having some fun with us. Um, so we never felt like we were in danger. And maybe that's why we never got the idea to bring in a, you know, somebody to, to clear the house, you know, with, uh, what do they use? Sage, <laughs> things like that. I you think know? there's, there's several, uh, methods that people use to clean, cleanse properties, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, uh, that depends on your belief system. I, I, I think. I, I try to keep an open mind. It, it, it's much better, especially for fiction writing. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a good backstory about the house and the history of the house and how it plays into your book. Do you want to talk a little bit about your book and what that's about? Well, thank you. I, I'd be happy to. Uh, so it's, um, it, it was an interesting exercise for me because I wrote it first person from the perspective of a 25-year-old young woman. And all my other books and stories were, you know, from a male perspective, I just felt like trying something different. So I created this, this young character. She's a reporter for a small paper in, uh, in a small town in Michigan, which is where I'm originally from. And she meets a, a musician uh, on a story that she's doing. They fall in love immediately. He's based in Vegas. She drops everything and moved, moves to Las Vegas to be with, with him. They buy this house, which is based on our house. They rehab it. And they, well, not him, but she um, experiences this ghost who was the former owner of the house. Instead of being a band leader, I made him a mobster. Because if you're doing Vegas and you got to have a, a mobster ghost, right? And I based that ghost on a couple of real mobsters out here. Uh, historically, a guy that a lot of people know from the, the Godfather movies, Meyer Lansky, they probably know that name. Um, they changed it in the Godfather to, to Hyman Roth. And then the other one, Mo Dalitz, who was a, a legendary uh, Vegas mob guy who came out here and rehabilitated his image and became like the, the most upstanding citizen. And he got all these Chamber of Commerce and Rotary awards and things like that. He actually got into the legitimate construction business and his company built the first mall, which is the Boulevard Mall out here, built the first real hospital, which is the um, um, Sunrise Hospital. And that was all from, a, from a, an ex-gangster uh, from Cleveland. So I based the ghost loosely on those guys. And the plot is basically that something is going on. There's a, a crooked uh, casino owner who wants to buy up the whole neighborhood to expand his casino. And um, there's a big cat and mouse game, kind of a fight between um, our young uh, protagonist and her husband and the casino owner. And uh, the ghost comes into play. He teaches her how to be tough and what to do. So uh, there, there's your story. With, with two surprise endings, by the way. Well, we'll leave that for readers. Right. to discover on their own. Um, so 
we earlier we talked and you had mentioned you wanted to uh, offer a giveaway for a book to one lucky listener. I'd love to. Absolutely. And if you know the name of whoever, well, you will, of whoever wins the book, I'd be happy to sign it. Also, uh, I always joke that uh, if I sign the book, it'll be worth a nickel more on eBay. So living in Vegas for, did you say almost 40 years now? No, I can't even believe it. We got here in 1981. How much does the uh, history of Vegas play into your books? Oh, I'm fascinated by the history, and I, I try to learn as much as I can every chance I get. For the latest book, I spent a, a great deal of quality time at the Mob Museum investigating those two mobsters that I mentioned, plus others. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful museum. It's very well curated, and uh, it changes all the time. So if I'd go every couple, two, three months, I would learn new things because they'd have different exhibits and, and, and uh, different um, things that they were focusing on. So um, this is not an ad for them. But if uh, your listeners, if, if, if they haven't been there yet, I highly recommend it. And they do have deals for locals, by the way. Yeah, I totally concur, man. Mob Museum, as well as uh, any of the other museums that we have in this town are fantastic places to visit. Off the beaten path, away from the tourist traps of, of Las Vegas. Another great one for history uh, buffs would be the Neon Museum, where they've saved many of the iconic signs, uh, which often are the only things left after imploding these hotels. Um, you know, in a, in a way, uh, the powers that be out here until recently were never very much in tune with the history. They just wanted to blow up the old stuff and start fresh. They were always much more future focused. And, but, but fortunately they salvaged a number of things in the, that can be seen in the Neon Museum. The Atomic Museum would probably be the third in the museum trifecta out here. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners know that, that Las Vegas was uh, very close to above ground atomic testing in the 50s and 60s. And I think it actually continued even longer than that. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stories and, you know, I talk about allergies. I mean, half the time I think that it's radiation or something that's still hanging around. The thought crosses my mind as well. Um, but yes, uh, as far as the Atomic Testing Museum, that is my favorite museum in this town. Uh, I did a, a podcast episode with the director of education from the museum. Oh, and that's cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting conversation, and I spent about three hours inside the museum taking pictures and walking through there and reading everything that they had. And I could have spent another three hours easily. They have that much information in that museum. Yeah, it's a fascinating place, no doubt. So now that we've uplifted everybody's education, you know, next time they come out here, they won't go to the casinos. They'll go hit those three museums. That's okay. Uh, because those do those places do deserve uh, attention as much attention as they could possibly get because they are preserving the history anyway back to paranormal activity i think i guess it was after you guys moved out of the house there was a story about your dad's watch oh yes um my my father i feel like i've had um messages from him in symbolic ways um he passed in 1997 
And one year to the day after that, um, my wife took me away for a, a long weekend just to kind of get my mind off things. And I'd always worn his watch after, after he died. He had a, a, a watch from the 1940s that he bought right after World War II. And uh, it was meant a lot to me. And while we were out of town, I went to look at the time and realized that the crystal on the watch had fallen off and the watch had stopped. And it's going to sound weird, but it had stopped at the exact time that he had passed one year to the day. And I just, you know, I took that for what it's worth. Um, you know, and I, it, it's comforting to me to, me to, to think that maybe he was, you know, telling me everything was okay. Yeah, that is a, that is a strange occurrence and uh, a possibility of maybe one in a trillion for something like that to happen. Well, yeah, you know, and again, uh, if you talk to a scientist, for example, and I've got, I mean, I'm not a science denier by any means, but they are often very good at rationalizing things away. And I think sometimes there are phenomena that happen to us that are just not explainable through logic and rational thinking. Agreed. So that could be one of them. And, you know, again, we have to be open to that type of stuff. I always, I'm not a big Shakespeare guy, but I remember certain phrases and, and sayings. And he had one where he said, uh, there are more things on heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I believe that. I believe, you know, like in the Matrix, that sometimes we get a little peek behind the curtain and we get to see the inner workings or the outer workings of, of you know, what's really happening behind the scenes. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you quoted Shakespeare because I would have pegged you more for a Poe guy. <laughs> well, you know, you can be both. Okay, that's true. <laughs> I, I have a, I'm a pretty eclectic reader. You have any uh, quotes? Any quotes from Edgar Allan Poe? Just nevermore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And didn't wasn't that didn't he do that poem Annabelle Lee? I always thought that was very you know. Since we're talking about Halloween, I always thought that that was very creepy. Um, but most of his stuff was creepy. Yeah, and, uh, that's why we that's why we uh, we follow him. And then I've been watching this HBO series lately about Lovecraft, or it's not about him, but it's inspired by his his writings. Yeah, I've heard about that. How do you, what do you how do you what's your take on that? It's, I, I, I can barely follow it and it's messed up, but it's really well done messed up. <laughs> so it's also making some interesting points about um, racial inequality in our society, but it doesn't hit us over the head with it. So I think it's very well done. It's very professional, but, uh, you know, for good or for bad, I can't, I'm sticking with it. It's interesting, but I can't really figure out what's going on. So maybe they'll wrap it all up. Who knows? Uh, is so it's is it one of those weekly releases of a new episode each week? Yes, and they're they're tied together, but sometimes you have a hard time figuring out what the connecting thread is. That I think that's my my biggest issue. Yeah, Netflix does a pretty good job of releasing those in bulk so that you can binge watch, and it's a little bit easier to follow that way. I think right. You can actually do that with HBO as well, with HBO On Demand. But, um, you know, this gives me something to 
to look forward to every week. So true. Yeah, that's true. But don't get me wrong. I've certainly done my share of binge watching. I think as we all have. Since we're on the topic of entertainment and we're talking about spooky stuff, uh, are there any other uh, shows or movies that, um, that you find that are standouts in this genre? Well, I, I am proud to say I've been a zombie fan before it became popular. I can vouch for that because I've known you for almost 20 years. It's close enough to 20 years. Yep. You could just call it 20. Uh, and yeah, uh, back in the, the early 2000s, zombies were not that popular. They come and go. Yeah. But, you know, I'm old enough to have actually seen the original black and white version of Night of the Living Dead in the movies. Wow. And, and yet I was young enough that it scared the living crap out of me. And uh, I'd never seen anything like it. And I was hooked. I was, I've been hooked on zombies ever since. Um, I like the scary ones. I like the funny ones. Uh, some, uh, I think the, the best kind have some humor like Zombieland or Shaun of the Dead, and yet they still manage to scare you. I think that's a very, that's really good writing and really good acting, you know, to, to be able to do both. I go all the way back to remembering, I wasn't around, but I remember like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Which, again, as a kid watching it on TV, I was scared and I laughed at the same time. And, and that's a good trick to be able to pull off. So zombies, and to a lesser extent vampires, but there's certain vampire movies that have really stuck with me. I like the traditional ones. I like the, you know, I like the zombies that move slow uh, and sort of, you know, don't chase you down the street, but they, but they corner you. I like the vampires that can't come out during the day. Um, you know, so I'm more of a traditionalist, I guess. There was a really good one. It's probably 30 years old now, and I think it's called Near Dark. And it was a bunch of vampires in, in Oklahoma who traveled around and uh, created more vampires. Um, but they had a they just had this beat up old van that had the windows blacked out so that they could drive during the day and night. and. Uh, I just thought it was a real super low budget movie, but um, I thought it was really well done. So that's one that stands out in my mind. It sounds familiar. Uh, I don't, I can't place it um, off the top it, of my head, but. It has this character actor. He was also in a number of the alien movies, I think named Lance Hendrickson. Do you know that name? Yes. I know the movie now. He's the head vampire. And again, they probably filmed it on a, on a shoestring. But, uh, you know, some of the best movies were done on the cheap and forces people to be creative. I mean, again, the original Night of the Living Dead probably cost, what, 50 grand? But look yeah. what that movie, I was just going to say, look what that movie spawned. I mean, right? And oh, yeah, a whole genre. Uh, I guess it would be called, uh, considered a subgenre. But yeah, yeah, before Night of the Living Dead, zombies were, there was one movie back in the 30s or 40s with... Uh, I, th I think Bela Lugosi was in it. White Zombie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But other than that, there was really nothing that really uh, touched on that topic until George Romero uh, came, came out with that Night of the Living Dead movie. Yep. And boy, Dawn of the Dead is still the classic of all classics, I think, with uh, the original, with, um, with that group stuck in the mall. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I think that's just an amazing movie. Yeah, good movie. Um, so, yeah, you know, I like all the zombie movies, all the vampire movies. Um, when I, if I go back to my childhood, watching creature features is what they would call it. Oh yeah, and it would be a um, back-to-back movies. What do they call that? Double, double feature. feature. Yeah, double, double creature feature. feature. Yeah, double creature feature. Right. You know, and they would have uh the zombie or the um the mummy the werewolf the frankenstein movies all the dracula all the hammer films oh yeah and don't forget creature of the black lagoon yeah yeah another good one so i yeah i used to watch all those when i was uh a, you know growing up i i guess i can't say that i was a little kid but i w- used to watch those growing up and i've always had a a really um fun time watching those kind of movies that I enjoy getting jump scared once in a while. Sometimes it gets annoying. You know, sometimes okay. the movies are like put a jump scare where it shouldn't be. Yeah. Or something like that. But yeah, I pretty much really enjoy those kind of movies. It, it's funny you say that. Cause when I was a kid also, uh, we I'm from Michigan, but we moved out to Southern California when I was still young and they used to have a thing on channel nine called the million dollar movie. And in those days, they would play the same movie every night at the same time and then twice on Saturday and twice on Sunday. And I'm sure it drove my parents absolutely crazy because sometimes when they'd have these scary movies, I don't know if you remember like them with the giant ants, for example, um, or the original um, Invisible Man, those kind of things. I'd watch it every night when it was on and you know, I had my own little black and white TV and my mom would come and say, would you turn that off? You know, turn that down. So I was the same way. And I, you know, my uncle, he would love to watch basketball games or anything that had to do with sports and he'd want to do his sports. And I, when a commercial would come on, I'd switch it over to a Godzilla movie and then he'd switch it back. <laughs> yeah. You know, I used to go through that same thing with, with uh, my parents and my family. Because all I ever wanted to watch was the the movies about that were uh, fiction, especially science fiction. Oh yeah, one of the greats, um, which holds up to this day, is the original War of the Worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Probably the early fifties, and what they were able to accomplish, you know, without computers and things, CGI, all that kind of stuff, is is simply amazing, and it's a it's a great story. And it's much better than that remake they did with um, with Tom Cruise years later. You know, I'm not going to compare the two movies because I like each one for different reasons. But I, as you said, the the movie from the 50s does hold up very well. I still enjoy watching that movie. We could go on like this for days, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't I don't want to spend the whole hour talking about movies, but um, I just remembered that I. Thanks to you, I wrote a zombie story a few years back. You said to me, you should write a Vegas. That's all you did. I think you told me that, you know, uh, said you should write a Vegas zombie story. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. And I turned around and I wrote a story called Slot Zombies about slot machines that turn people into zombies. And if you walk through, it's based on reality, sort of. If you walk through any casino, you know, in the middle of the night or in the morning, and you see these holdouts that are just, you know, playing the slot machines. They, they hardly look 
awake or even living. They're just pulling the handle or pushing a button and there's no expression on their face. Um, and I thought, well, what if they were real zombies? And uh, it wound up getting published just within the last maybe year or two in a book called Stories for the Mad, which is available on Amazon. All my stuff, like every other writer in the world, all my stuff is available on Amazon and in some Barnes and Noble stores. So uh, very cool on, on where you are. Um, definitely in Vegas. I, I think the stores still handle my stuff. Yeah. Well, so two, two, two stories that I have about what you just told me. One, the first thing that popped into my head was when we had the conversation. It's funny because I remember talking to you about writing a zombie story. Mm -hmm. we used to go to lunch over at Lucille's that's right and it was either walking into or out of the um the restaurant this one time that we were having lunch together and we were talking about zombies and I think I just popped off off the top of my head said hey why don't you write a zombie movie or write a zombie story right short story or something like that yeah I do totally remember that and in fact I can visualize that moment for some weird reason well, I, pre I appreciate the suggestion. I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, well, it was a good story, too. I, re I remember reading it. And in, in fact, that's the second, the second thing that popped into my head was in reading that story, I visualized myself walking through, I don't know if this is appropriate not to name drop a casino, but mm -hmm. the Fiesta right over here off of uh, Lake Mead Parkway. You know yeah. what I'm talking uh -huh. about? I do. Uh, walking through that little casino back before it was the Fiesta, it used to be called the Reserve. Boy, that's right. Yeah, that's a good trivia question. <laughs> right, and but that's what I visualized when I when I read your story. That's what I visualized walking through that old Reserve Casino. And You're right, because I did not put it in a big modern casino. I stuck it in a in a downtown Vegas casino. Oh yeah. I, thought it would have more local color you know well congrats on getting that published man that's cool i appreciate it, it took me a long time but i found somebody who was interested um, yeah. they did an anthology of weird stories and apparently mine fit so very cool do you have any tips for i have a lot of writers that uh listen to this podcast do you have any tips on how to get a short story like that published well Probably not from the standpoint that um, they reached out to me. I had sort of given up, you know, the, I mean, the, the basic way you do it, if you have an agent, which I don't anymore, um, the agent will shop it around for you. If you're on your own, then you get the writer's market uh, reference book and you find magazines or, or publishers that are buying that type of material. You send them what they call a query letter and then if they respond to that, they ask you to send a story or a sample. It's a long involved process. Um, somehow this particular publisher, I don't, I've, to this day, I don't know how, but sometimes things happen, you know, just through a stroke of luck, reached out to me via email and said, hey, I heard about this story. Are you interested in uh, including it in this anthology book that I'm working on? I said, Heck yeah. So I don't think that's really great advice. Um, you can't just sit around and wait for something good to happen. 
uh, you got to be proactive. But on the other hand, sometimes when you just sort of shelve it for a while, sometimes things are still working behind the scenes. Cool. Good, good, good pointers. The one thing that I take, took out of that is, well, first of all, luck is the meeting of opportunity versus preparedness. That's right. So who said that Einstein, somebody like that? Uh, you know what? Somebody said it, but I don't remember who I, I remember a particular friend of mine um, who said that to me years ago. And I thought that was such a brilliant quote. I know he took it from somebody else, but I don't know who. Yeah, it's a good one. So obviously you had put that story out somewhere and somebody had come across the story and it was making rounds somewhere in some circles because he approached you about that particular story, right? You know what? Now that you mention it, I had posted it on my website. Cool. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity also to share the story about your mother, the, the story you told me about your mom, the 409 story. Oh, yeah. There's another thing. And that was uh, my, my mom and dad. So the, the thing that people may not believe me when I say it is that my father was the original inventor of Formula 409. And that leads to the question, why am I not rich? And it's because he invented it as an industrial solvent for really tough cleaning problems in the late 50s. But he sold it in 1961 to a company that turned around and sold it to Clorox in 1965. That's when it became a worldwide phenomenon and the, the number one household cleaner. Um, but the 409 is very special to our family because it was named after my mom's birthday, April 9th, which is 409. So not many people know that. I have that on my website too. And it's, it finally found its way to Wikipedia as well. Um, Clorox had a BS marketing story that they were telling that wasn't true. And I got them to fix it. So that made me happy. But um, my dad from time to time has also, I feel, sent messages via 409. And I've got a, an interesting story. At least I hope it's interesting. Um, when our younger daughter was pregnant for the first time, uh, we found out she was having a boy and she was probably a month away from giving birth. And my wife and I were out of town. It sounds like all our stories were out of town. We don't go that much, but you know, all these stories happen when we're taking a break. And we were checking into a hotel while we were in line and we were next up. Um, she gets a call from our daughter who said, hey, I, we decided to name the baby after uh, after dad's dad, so which would be my father. So after they hung up and we were up at the at the, the desk checking in, I said, boy, that's an honor. My father would be pleased. I said, I wonder if he knows. And at that exact moment, the clerk handed us our room keys and said, you'll be in room 409. And my wife looked at, we looked at each other and we both said at the same time, he knows. <laughs> Very cool. And um, again, you know, coincidence, it seems like, you know, it, it, the odds are astronomical of something like that happening at exactly that time. Agreed. Uh, yeah. And uh, 
you know, I don't have an explanation for that. I don't know anybody who would try to explain it. What's cool about the stories that you've shared is that they're none of them are really if if you're haunted, dude, you've got the kindest, gentlest ghosts that probably ever existed that are haunting you. Okay. Well, you know, maybe they they know that I couldn't handle the other kind. <laughs> Well, on that note, I uh, did want to ask you if you have a favorite spooky story. Uh, as far as books that I read and, and, and things like that, there's, um, you know, I mean, I like the, the usual mainstream writers. I'm a fan of, of Stephen King, although I like his older stuff better. Um, I find the new stuff is too long and, and repetitious. Um, you know, I was into Dean Koontz for a while. There's a Southern Gothic horror writer that I really like named Robert McCammon. And um, if, if your listeners are not familiar with him, I highly recommend uh, he writes short stories and, and novels. He's got a great, um, really quirky, scary novel called Gone South. But he wrote a short story a number of years ago called Pin that freaked me out probably more than anything else I've ever read. And it was just a, a simple premise of a, uh, a guy who escapes from a, uh, an insane asylum and he checks into a cheap motel and he's got it in his head that if he sticks a pin in his eye, he will see God. And the story is about him getting up the nerve to stick that pin in his eye. And uh, I had to put that story down multiple times I literally broke out, you know how they say he broke out in a cold sweat? I broke out in a cold sweat, had to walk around, get a drink of water, come back to it, because I said, I've got a man up. I got to finish this thing. And uh, it really freaked me out. So uh, um, I, think, I think that, you know, the, the craft of writing, for somebody to be able to do that and, and, and affect somebody else emotionally that deeply is uh really a, a credit to his craft definitely yeah and it does sound like a creepy story man um <clears throat> so hey you know this being the second time we we've recorded this um i'm sure we left out some of the juicy details from the last episode is there anything that you remember you know because i'm extremely grateful for you coming on and doing this a second time retelling all of your uh, funny, scary, sad stories um, for the second time. And, you know, I want to let people know what, what you've, how, how important your contribution is to this Halloween special and how much I appreciate you doing it. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we could, we could do it again. We, we did have a, a technical glitch last time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure we left out some juicy stories, but I think we included some new juicy stories. So That's true. Uh, I feel like we, uh, we covered a lot of the same ground. And, uh, you know, I also feel like as soon as we are done with the show, I'll think of the others. <laughs> That's the way things always work. So if, um, if somebody was interested in reaching out to you, I know you're busy, you run a, a marketing company in town here in Vegas and, and you're swamped with more work than you can actually handle. But if anybody needs marketing services, public relations, or press releases, go talk to Brian, right? But how can people get in contact with you? 
Um, well, if I can put in a, a quick plug, the name of my company is called Imagine Communications. And like most authors, so I do have the day job. But um, I tell you what, I love talking to other writers. And I also love talking to readers. So anybody could feel free to, to drop me a line um, or give me a call. Um, probably the best way to get in touch with me is through my website. It's brianruff.com. Uh, it's B-R-I-A-N. My last name is R-O-U-F-F. Two Fs like frankfrank.com. And um, I think it's got all my contact information on it. So um, I'd love to hear from your, from, your, uh, from your listeners. Right on. And so also on your website, you've got links to all of your books. Uh, you've got some short stories and you've got a section where you write a blog once in a while. Yeah, I used to be a lot more active with the, with the blog. I've probably got over 100 blogs that I've done. They're mostly about creativity. And of course, not surprisingly, you know, many of them are about writing. But I also do movie reviews from time to time. I love talking about music. I'm fascinated by songwriters. To me, that is one of the, the hardest. I don't think I could write a, song, a good song to save my life. Um, you know, those of us who write long form like novels have the luxury of being able to, to you know, take as many pages as we need to tell our story. Whereas a good songwriter in three or four or five minutes can, can tell an entire story. It's like a movie, you know, condensed into a short amount of time. People like uh, Bruce Springsteen is a genius at that. One that comes, you know, of story songs. Um, Bob Seger is another guy, Tom Petty. Uh, a lot of those singers, songwriters, Paul Simon for sure, Bob Dylan. It's, it just amazes me. So I do spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, that type of uh, creativity as well. Uh, one more I want to throw into that list. Uh, I don't know if you've written about him or not, but Chris Christopherson. Christopherson, boy, I just got chills when you said that, it is a fine writer. I have not written about him specifically, but I've certainly referenced his work. I mean, uh, me and Bobby McGee is one of those stories, and it's brilliant. And when you hear some of these lines that he wrote, that are so on the money and so succinct, you know, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I mean, how great is that? Right? Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Another guy I did write about Randy Newman. I don't know how many people remember him at all. Uh, maybe they now just know him as the, the guy who wrote the Toy Story theme, but uh, his story songs are amazing. Uh, yeah, so many good writers. And uh, I, you know what, I honestly, I didn't know that you wrote about um, mu music or uh, uh, songwriters. I didn't, I didn't realize that you had, um, uh, you know, some of your blog posts were about that. Yes. Uh, you know, listen, as a, as a child of the 60s and 70s, which, you know, to me was the, uh, the golden age of, of music and the golden age of singer songwriters. Uh, you know, I, I just became very important to me. So, uh, and again, I, I always like writing about and analyzing things that I'm not capable of doing. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, maybe if I had, you know, that whole thing about 10,000 hours, yeah. maybe if I had 10,000 hours into it, I might be okay. But uh, that's probably not going to happen. Well, we're going to wrap it up real 
real quick because I know you got to go, but do you have a favorite song since we're talking about music? Wow. That is, that is really, really hard. You could give me two or three if you want to, but uh, just, uh, just throw a couple out there that off the top of your head. Sure. Um, so I mentioned uh, Bob Dylan. Um, one of the, the great story songs that I love of his is called Tangled Up in Blue. It's about seven or eight minutes and it's like watching a full length movie. Um, and every time I've listened to it thousands of times and every time I hear it, I, I hear something different and I, I think of something different. So just, uh, just genius. I mentioned uh, Springsteen. I mean, uh, anything from, uh, you know, Born to Run to Hungry Hearts to uh, Rosalita. Those are, those are all amazing songs. Um, let's see who else, Paul Simon, I think I mentioned as well, um, both with Simon and Garfunkel and then on his own, there's, he does a lot of character songs also. So he's got one called Duncan, for example, which is a, a story about a, a young man uh, on the road, finding his way in life is, uh, is genius. And then uh, anything he, any of his road songs, I just really love, uh, you know, when they uh, search for America, you know, I don't, and, and then there's another one, I think it's called uh, American Tune. Just, just amazing stuff. So I could go on and on. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and I would love to let you go on and on. I know you got to bail and we got two minutes um, <laughs> before we, before I have to cut you loose or you have to cut me loose either way. Sure. So, Hey, Brian, I really appreciate you once again for, for doing this second take on the Halloween special for dead hand radio. Uh, it's always good to talk to you, my man. And hopefully maybe in the future, you'll come back on, do another episode with me. I'd love to, uh, you know, I said it last time. I'll say it again. This is a really fast hour. Uh, you make it easy and I appreciate it. And I'd love to come back sometime. Awesome. Thank you, man. And Thank talk you. to you soon. Bye -bye. You got it.